Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, uh, to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14, we're continuing this study, uh, this summer study of this historical book that records the downward spiral of Israel's national and spiritual life in the 11th, the 12th, and the 13th centuries before Christ. So indeed, as I prayed, this is history. This is real life history that we're studying. But of course, it's so much more than history. It's God's Word. It's life to us. It's preserved for us. And this is a book, a heavy book, that has chronicled uh, the 12 leaders, the judges, as this book has called them, who led the nation of Israel in this time period. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, you're jumping kind of in the middle of a story. You're actually jumping in the middle of two stories. One is this story of these centuries in the nation of Israel where their behavior and their cultural life and religious life was on a downward spiral. But you're also coming in the middle of a story of, as I said earlier, a grand story of what God is doing in saving a people for Himself, in pointing forward from this book to His Son, the Son that we have worshipped today. Last week we began with the story of Samson, the twelfth and final judge of this book. It's the story of God bringing life from barrenness. Remember those of you who were here last week. And today we pick up his story. The baby is all grown up now. I guarantee that his mother and his father, Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, as we got to know them last week, that they never forgot the circumstances of his birth, the angelic appearance that announced that birth, and the information that was given concerning what this child had come and was being born to do. They had been waiting, not just for a baby, but they had been waiting in anticipation and expectation and simple faith concerning what this child would accomplish. Will he deliver? How will he deliver? Will he be the hero that Israel has long waited for? Or will there be another? That's where we are as we dive back into the story of Judges, Judges chapter 14. I'm going to invite you, if you're able and willing, uh, to stand for the reading of God's Word out of honor to His Word. Judges chapter 14, listen as I read and follow along. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. 
At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, for she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out with his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of this feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him. The seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to this episode in the life of Samson, there are two encouragements, two things that I'd like us to see, meditate on, and be challenged by in this passage, two big life-girding themes that I think the Lord wants His people to know and continually be reminded of as we walk with Him in this life of faith. These are themes we've seen in other places, in other books, but not yet in this way, not yet in the book of Judges. And the first one is this, marvel at the mystery of God's work. Marvel at the mystery of God's work. 
Mystery is the key word in that statement. We like mystery when it comes to our movies. We like mystery when it comes to our novels. But we do not like mystery, let's confess, when it comes to our real lives. No, we want full disclosure in our lives. We want a follow-up explanation. And we want, oh yeah, plenty of time for Q&A, if you don't mind, Lord. Plenty of time. But brothers and sisters, God doesn't work that way. God is God. We are not. This whole book has been full of surprises, and this passage today is no different. Marvel at, be encouraged in, worship. There's a number of ways that you could take this theme of the mystery of God and apply it to your heart in a way that will impact you. I don't know what the Lord is doing in each of your lives specifically, but I do know this. God is the hero of this story. More specifically, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the hero of this story. Samson is not insignificant, but he is insufficient. Hebrews 11 will record him as a man of faith, but he is a man of deeply flawed faith. For his story unfolds not like a beautiful tale of honorable intentions and selfless courage and and humble triumphs. No, his story looks more like a Hollywood movie, right? Sex and intrigue and violence and death. What's going on here? Our passage last week began with a birth announcement and ended with a young man being stirred by the Spirit of God. Our passage today begins with a young man being stirred by his youthful passions. Passions that will prove to be a lifelong struggle for young Samson. Let's jump in and talk through this passage a bit. Timnah was a city that was about four miles from Samson's home. It was a Philistine city. Now remember, mom and dad had been waiting. Mom and dad had been grooming their son from the very beginning for the salvation that he would accomplish on behalf of God's people. Right? Verse 13, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 5. He will begin salvation from the Philistines. And now suddenly... Seemingly, the hopes and the dreams of Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, they seem to come crashing down. The son has wandered from home and he has found a woman who has caught his eye and now he demands that mom and dad get her for him. Now there's all sorts of problems with this interaction, not the least of which is the way he speaks to his parents in a culture where parents were involved in the selection of a spouse for a son or a daughter, here he is demanding as if he is privileged pie. Maybe he had been told one too many times that he was the chosen one. And so he comes to mom and dad, get her for me. You want to marry who, Samson? From where? 
And that's the primary issue. Not just the way he speaks to his parents and what it tells us about his character, but the fact that the woman that he has set his eyes on is a Philistine. And God had already warned his people again and again not to marry those in the land, lest they lose their identity as the people of God. Samson needed to marry a daughter of the covenant. Paul stressed the same thing to the church in Corinth, doesn't he, in the New Testament where he says, do not be unequally yoked lest you forget who you are and who you serve. And so Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, why can't you just find a nice Jewish girl? But Samson wouldn't have it. Verse 3, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And there you have it. There you have the mantra of Israel in this day. It will be stated after this again and again, and it would end. This entire book will end with these words in chapter 21, verse 25. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We'll be in Samson for a couple more weeks, and one of the things I want us to see about Samson's life is that while he is supposed to be leading Israel to something different, leading Israel to Yahweh, he is really just a macro version of Israel themselves. He is embodying what they are nationally. Notice the number of times in this passage. I don't know if you heard it as I read it. Notice the number of times that it is described that Samson is going down. Verse 1, going down. Verse 5, going down. Verse 7, going down. Verse 19, going down. His life is literally and figuratively going down. And so is Israel's. And I think a little side application, if we can just step away from that primary point, a little side application for us is that we understand this to some degree, don't we? I mean, this is the mantra of our day and age in large measure, right in my own eyes, right? We don't speak of the truth, we speak of your truth and my truth. In other words, I decide what's right or wrong. And as Sheryl Crow once famously crooned, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. I was fishing around the internet today, or excuse me, this week, for something to describe the state of our culture, and indeed it didn't take me long before I came across a helpful article, a helpful quote from the Huffington Post It says this, truth empowers, but you must define what that empowerment will look like, feel like, and act like. Begin by taking stock of what you feel is your truth. Clarify the details in your mind and then affirm to the universe that these truths you have identified with will be your guiding light. Yeah, 
It is laughable. And it's scary because this is beyond foolishness. If everyone is really identifying with their own truth, then what is the end? It's chaos. It's, it's anarchy. But that's where the human heart naturally wants to go. Autonomy at all costs. And that's what we as a people, as a church, must guard against and must instill in the next generation, our kids growing up, that there is a truth that must be bowed to, that must be submitted to, that must be lived by. But getting back to our story, what's really going on here? Verse 4, I think, is the key. Look at it with me, if you would. Verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, two questions that we need to ask after reading that verse. The first is, what is the it? The second is, who is the he? I think the it actually should be translated she. And the Hebrew allows for that. And in fact, the Hebrew points to that, I think, in a better way. And therefore, the he is the Lord, not Samson. So let me reread the verse. His father and mother did not know that she was from the Lord, for the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. You see, Samson is drunk in love. He is seeking one thing, and it ain't war, let me tell you. In other words, while Samson is being driven by his passions, Yahweh isn't along for the ride. He is not reacting to what Samson does. He's in the driver's seat. Even when the car is speeding and distracted, so to speak, it's not hyperbole to say that this is one of the most important and impactful truths for us to remember, that we serve a sovereign God whose will and purposes cannot be thwarted. And so marvel at the mystery of God's work. Sinfulness and stupidity don't trump the will of God. Brokenness and evil don't trump the will of God. You see, what God is doing here in the life of Samson is he's shaking up the landscape of the ancient Near East. He's up to something that is at first shrouded in the actions of his servant. But we'll see it more clearly in just a moment. Remember we read earlier Acts chapter 2? In order to remind ourselves that the darkest day in human history when the truly, the only truly innocent man to have ever walked the face of this earth was executed on a Roman cross... And what did Peter say? This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That, my friends, is mystery. 
Well, explain that to me, Pastor Nate. I can't explain it to you. I can just declare it to you because the Bible declares it to you. There are things at play and things at work that we don't know. The Hobbit movies that came out a few years ago, there's a scene in one of the Hobbit movies. It's the desolation of smog. And there's a scene in that movie where the dwarves, in their journey, they come to a boatsman, and they need the boatsman to get them into Lake Town, but they're, they're hunted. They, they've got to do it secretly. And so the boatsman puts all the dwarves into barrels. You might remember this scene if you've seen the movie. He puts all the dwarves into barrels, and then he has, he has them covered in fish, stinky fish, which drives the dwarves nuts, but it hides them in the stink of fish. And I was thinking about that image, that scene, that picture, because I think in, in a lot of ways it's a fitting picture of our lives, right? In the bottom of the barrel is life, is salvation, but it's hidden amidst all the stink of the fish. And yet how easily we just focus on the stink. We just whine about the stink, not realizing what's underneath, not remembering who is at work, behind the scenes. Some of my favorite articulations of this doctrine are found in the Heidelberg Catechism, this Protestant Reformed document written in the 1560s. It's super old. I've read some of these question and answers to you, but I want to read a couple more this morning on this very point of marveling at the mystery of God's work Question and answer 26 says, what do you believe when you say, I believe God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? We'll confess that later. The answer is this, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and my Father because of Christ his Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is Almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. And so, how does this knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? The answer, we can be patient when things go against us. We can be thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence that our faithful God and Father, that nothing will separate us from His love. All creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. That's good news. Whatever is going on in your lives, God has not abandoned you. He is at work. Whatever is going on in our lives, collectively, as a church, as a nation, as a culture, God has not abandoned us. And even though we are tempted at times to despair, God is at work. 
And so marvel at, be encouraged by the mystery of God's work. That's the first thing. The second is this. Rest in the power of God in weakness. Rest in the power of God in weakness. And we've talked about weakness in this book. We've talked about God using the weak in this book. But this is a focus on the power, on the power of God. I don't know if you ever remember any of you who grew up in the church, sometimes growing up in the church. Most of the time, growing up in the church was a good thing. Every once in a while, it was maybe not such a good thing, some of the things you were exposed to, but some of you might remember the power team. The power team. They were from my childhood, and these were a group of big men, muscular men, who would travel around to churches ripping foam books and breaking piles of bricks with their heads in the name of Jesus. And like a lot of things from the 80s, it was not the evangelical world's finest moment. But I will say this, the heart was there. The heart was there. And I know you've got to go home and YouTube power team, do it, I dare you. The heart was there because these men, these big, burly, strong men, they had been radically, powerfully changed by the gospel of Jesus. And so they wanted to convey to an audience the power of God in salvation. Frankly, they probably got their idea from this episode in the life of Samson. You remember last week I introduced Samson as the Thor of the Bible, right? The Chris Hemsworth of the Bible, this big, muscular, handsome dude. But I got to tell you, both of those assumptions that came from my Sunday school years, they're without any biblical evidence. I mean, the Bible talks about people's physique in other places, but the Bible never talks about Samson's physique. And yet, we know him for his feats of strength, so we just assume that he was this huge dude. The Bible doesn't say that. See, the point is, Samson is not a member of the power team. Samson isn't strong because of his workout regimen. He's strong because the Lord is with him. And because the Spirit of God is upon him. You see, this is a crazy story. You know it is. And I think the Lord, through this story, is giving Samson a foretaste, so I think he completely misses it, of what he can and will do, both physically and spiritually, through the power of God's Spirit. Samson has set his eyes on this woman four, four miles away in Timnah. So obviously, as the wedding is being prepared, they're making trips down to Timnah, and as the family makes this trek for wedding arrangements, Samson gets separated, apparently, from his folks, and he ends up being attacked by a lion. With his life in danger, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and he ends up tearing the lion apart with his bare hands like you would do a goat, because I know all of you know what it's like to do that to a goat, right? It's kind of a curious detail in the scriptures, like you would a goat. 
It's crazy, this story. But we read it quickly and we can't, we read it quickly and really don't think about the impact of living through such an episode. I mean, whether, whether he acknowledges it or not, the Lord has protected Samson and has given him a glimpse of the resources that he will bring to bear upon his life in order to begin the salvation of Israel. I mean, he couldn't do that on his own. So in the verses that follow, the writer seemingly dismantles whatever pedestal we are tempted to put Samson on through some bizarre scenes, right? The first scene is the lion's dead, he's still traveling, and Samson has what, what I'm calling his Winnie the Pooh moment. Sorry to put that image in your head, but it's been in my, it's in, been in my head all week. <laughs> Remember Winnie the Pooh? He'd stick his hand in the bee's nest and get the honey out. I won't do my Winnie the Pooh impression. Traveling on the road to Timnah, he comes across this lion's carcass, and it's inhabited by bees. Now, some have made a lot of this, this picture of sweetness and life in the midst of death. I don't know how much there is to that, but the fact of the matter is, I think the writer is primarily showing us Samson's disregard, Samson's own spiritual weakness, his disregard for his Nazarite vow, <laughs> Remember the Nazarite vow that he was set apart? Set apart for the Lord and for his work, chosen. And one of the aspects of that vow was he was not to come into contact with the dead. And yet here he is, not only coming into contact, but scooping it out of the dead carcass and giving it to mom and dad. Total disregard for the honor of the Lord and for God's purposes in his life. And then there is Samson's fool, the Philistines moment, right? Samson's at his wedding feast in verse 10. A wedding feast would be this three to seven day celebration. Lots of feasting, lots of games, lots of dancing, lots of celebration. But one thing I want you to note, the root of the Hebrew word for feast here literally means to drink. This is a drinking party. This is a drinking party. Remember, he traveled through the vineyards of Timnah to get here. Strike two on the Nazarite vow. He wasn't supposed to drink anything from the fruit of the vine. And the Philistines have provided the companions, and Samson's going to provide the entertainment. He's going to give a riddle, a riddle. And the prize is fine clothes, which to us is kind of like, hmm, whatever. But fine clothes in the ancient Near East, that was a big deal. Fine linen clothes were expensive. They were a prize. The stakes are high. And of course, the riddle that he gives, it seems easy to us, the readers, because we were with Samson on the road to Timnah. But how are the guests supposed to get the answer to this riddle? Something that was so personal to Samson, to something that was from his personal experience when he was all alone. But you see, that's the point. The riddle is blatantly unfair for the purpose of upsetting the Philistines. 
which is exactly what happens. All right, so let's take a step back. What's really going on here? We've seen this imperfect vessel, disregard for the Lord's honor, for the Nazarite vow which, which he was given and birthed with. But through the weakness of this imperfect vessel, Yahweh is accomplishing something that Israel won't do on its own. God is about to shake things up. After three days of frustration, they begin to work on Samson's new bride. Remember, these are her people, and she in turn begins to work on him, and he finally relents, losing the bet, losing a bit of his pride, and then accomplishing what God had purposed all along. You see, Israel is too comfortable with their enemies. And so God is going to make them uncomfortable with their enemies. They won't do it on their own. And so Yahweh must intervene. Through the sinful pride, through the weakness, through the impulsive anger of his servant Samson, the first domino falls in one of the main Philistine cities, Ashkelon. The power of God through weakness. Sure, Samson was just angry. He was just repaying a debt. After all, he had to get the clothes from somewhere, right? But the sovereign Lord, through the rushing of his spirit, is mysteriously, purposefully, and powerfully accomplishing his purposes. I think that's what the writer of Judges wants us to see. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to believe, truly believe in our lives, in our hardships, even in our mistakes. Oh, this is not, do not hear that this is a license to sin, to do whatever you want because God will use it and God will fix it. No, God still calls his people to faithful obedience, but this is the assurance that despite what we see, despite how we feel, God is at work and so we need not despair. That weakness you feel in sin, maybe, in that addiction, in Christ, you have been given the spirit of power. He is sufficient. He is able. He is sovereign. Could the Lord have just given us bullet points <laughs> to get that across? Sure, but he gave us a riddle, a lion, and a Winnie the Pooh moment. Isn't that great? Isn't that vivid? Marvel and rest in his work, in his mysterious and powerful work in saving and sustaining a people like you and me for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the imperfection, almost the comedic imperfection of your servant, Samson, whom you used despite him. 
And as we take that word and that truth of the mystery and the power of your work, and as we sit here as those in Christ, those given the spirit of power, Father, may we be encouraged. May we be led to worship as we think about battling our own sin, as we think about being bold in evangelism, as we think about doing the hard things, the countercultural things for the sake of the gospel. Father, you are indeed sufficient. You are indeed sovereign. And we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.